Welcome to Where Others Won't, episode 78. These guys need no introduction in the coaching world. Doug Lamov, Todd Bean, if you haven't already, buy their books. Enjoy this marvellous episode. Gentlemen, this kind of started as a little bit of a joke in that I think our books were being sold together on Amazon or bundled together and, and flogged off to the lowest bidder. But um, glad, glad we could make this work. Doug Lamov, how are you doing, mate? Doing great, Cody. Good to be good to be with you. Absolutely. Todd Bean, how are you? Doing great. Cheers to everybody here from Barcelona. And good to be on with Doug, of course, and you as well, Cody. Thank you for the invite. I was wondering where you were because we're in three different sun areas. Uh, you might be in the basement as usual, Doug, but I've got broad daylight, Todd sitting in the dark. <laughs> I've got the kids put to bed and things quieted down. So hopefully we, hopefully we can stay on track here. <laughs> Let's jump in. Obviously, our, our books kind of came out around the same time around coaching and, you know, we've you know, exchanged ideas for a long time now on social media as well. So really keen to go probably deeper rather than wider with you guys. I think that would be the most value. But let me start with this, Doug, for you, since bringing out particularly your coaching book, is there something that surprised you that the audience grabbed onto that maybe you didn't expect? You know, once it became the audience's book, they they grabbed onto this idea that maybe you didn't think was necessarily the strongest? Well, the first thing that surprised me was that people read it. I was really, <laughs> really happy with that. Uh, I may be a little bit surprised, but I, you know, I, it is really interesting to see what, what resonates with people. And maybe I like, I always think of teaching as a sort of odd combination of the sublime and the mundane. Um, and, you know, it's like really profound, uh, thoughtful moments often built on a foundation of, uh, really basic stuff and I think that maybe one of the things that's resonated most with readers on the sublime side has been just like the importance of perception the underestimated role of perception I think people are really locked onto that and for me like uh mm. just like a tip of the cap to Todd that all really started for me with his just an offhanded thing that you you, you said in a conversation Todd said it all starts with perception and it really, and I, I think until I just heard it said so simply and so clearly, it hasn't resonated with me. But I think that that's one of the big takeaways for coaches, I think, from the book is that is that decision-making um, starts with perception is often at speed indistinguishable from perception. Um, and that if we want to teach decision-making, we should start with the eyes, you know, directing what, what you're looking at is you can't make the right decisions if you're not looking at the right, at the signal. So I think that's one takeaway. And then on the, you know, on the mundane side, I think another, I'm equally happy with this takeaway. Uh, there's a phrase in the book from a rugby coach in New Zealand who says, if you, and he's talking about giving feedback to players. He says, if you chase five rabbits, you catch none. And the idea, you know, just the idea that like, oftentimes to try and make athletes better when we're giving them feedback, we tell them something and then we're like, oh, and here's another thing. Oh, and another thing. And one more thing, because we want to make them better faster, but the result is the opposite. And that if, if we want to help people improve, we really have to give them, you can really hold one idea in your working memory 
And so I think that like, it's a very simple, you know, there's, there's one sort of sublime thing there, which is perception and it's a profound role and one very simple thing, which is like talk about one thing at a time. And um, maybe those are two of the things that I think that readers have taken away from the book, I hope. Um, they're, they're an interesting combination, those two things. Yeah, I love that. And I want to keep going on that, but I'll, I'll flip it over to, to Todd first. But I, yeah, on just on that, Doug, I think that's, um, I think that's stunning for people because particularly as we go up the, um, the importance level up the professionalism level, you think it becomes more complex and you've got to say more and it's got to be, you know, all these fancy drills, but the reality is, is actually the other way around. It becomes simpler. And so I, I think you hit on something there that maybe shocked people a little bit in that, that that's the learning element of it is that it's remarkably simple, but that doesn't line up with, well, we're paying them millions of dollars and they're this and they're that. And they're, I've seen the training drills on Twitter and, you know, they're supposed to look like this and really complex and I'm just down here. So, you know, my, mine's supposed to be simple, not up there. Uh, I think you really captured that. Yeah. What, what about you, Todd? What, what if anything, you know, kind of, grabbed you that the audience had grabbed onto? Well, I think, you know, and I, I can't consider myself in the same uh, realm as you two. You're both accomplished authors, obviously. I really put together a pandemic project, if you will. It took me probably just a few weeks and 50 years to write this book, if you think of it in that terms. I just sat down and I wanted to do a discipline exercise for myself to clarify in the most simple terms I could, um, a process that I've tend to follow through the years. And I did that as a discipline for myself. Could I articulate clearly and simply? Uh, and I just thought I would learn about self-publishing and I just put it out into the, you know, into out into the world, not with any expectations. So I think what surprised me most is uh, is not that people read Doug's book because millions should, but that you know, more than family members read mine, right? So that was one. And the two things that I take away from that are people commented on it allowed them the liberty to think about their own processes and coaching in the most simplistic terms, right? And I think you touched them on something. It isn't the complexity that's the challenge. It's the simplicity that forces us to hone in on what's most important. And the second is I, I'm really... I'm passionate by the, the people that wrote just about how it moved them in a way to remind them of what's most important, which is the learning and joy of our craft, right? We need to enjoy ourselves. We need to promote learning. And when we do that at the most simple level with the most disciplined focus, the beneficiaries are the children in our charge. And, and a lot of people just wrote, you know, nice, warm, heartfelt messages just about what coaching is really about. And I, and I take... I take that to heart myself and, and getting that sort of welcomed response to a, to a simple message, really a simple message at the end. Mm. Yeah, that's, that's magical, isn't it? It doesn't take much, but it means so much when you get those messages. I want to stay with you, Todd. I gravitated towards your work because you, as far as I could tell, were out on an island 
preaching that the game is about perception, like Doug mentioned, and, and the manipulation of space and time. Like out on the island, I mean the only person I could find talking about it. And that's how I visualized Aussie rules and quite frankly, invasion games. They are the same game underneath all of it. There's cosmetic differences. I bounce the ball, I kick the ball, I, I catch the ball, but um, ultimately it's, it's essentially the same game. And like what hurdles have you run into with coaches adopting this idea that it is about perception and, and space and, and time and how you manipulate or how the team manipulates that? Because it seems to be something that isn't just a, a given. Yeah, certainly not. I think what really I felt at times like a salmon, you know, swimming upstream. And that's, and um, I don't think it's an idea that really is too conflicting to think that we're playing an invasion game and ultimately we need to find space and exploit space. I mean, I don't think that's really revolutionary. I think what that prompts is the discussion of how we go about teaching the game. And that's what I was trying to come to. And that's a, that's a long process. You know, I've tried many methods to get to this simple form. And I think maybe in working with Johan uh, enough, I recognize what you mentioned at the initial portion of the broadcast, which is I had assumed that if I'm going to talk to Johan Cruyff, who coached Barcelona to the greatest heights of its era, that I was going to get this voluminous tirade of concepts. And I didn't. I got this basic romantic vision that this game is about space and time. And how to play it simply is the most challenging component. And by extension, how to coach it in those terms to young people is of great import. And so I think what came to fruition in my own mind was just, could I simplify my own thinking, clarify my own thinking, and then if I believe that it's an invasion game to find and exploit space, what would I have to change about how I teach the game to make it more about learning that concept? And that was an arduous process for me, right? You have, you have so many ideas, and I've talked to Doug on so many occasions. It's just a wealth of ideas. It's not the creation of ideas that's difficult. It's the pruning ideas for me that's most difficult. And that's what I try to do on this journey, and I'm still on it. I'm still trying to teach the game in the most efficient, effective way that children will find rewarding and engaging and dynamic and fun. And it's not the expensive nature of the game, it's actually honing in the craft of being a meaningful messenger and mentor to them. And that hasn't been easy. I'm on this journey. I don't think I'll ever reach that goal, but with, with minds like yourself and with Doug speaking me through how to teach, I can get to those concepts with more clarity and maybe with more cohesion if I do my job well. Yeah. I've been sitting on this a lot recently and I get the sense without this sounding sinister that we're getting complexity because we're looking for it. I think there are a lot of people incentivized to keep it complex. It keeps a lot of people employed. Again, not in a sinister way, but the, the idea of searching for some simplicity gives this idea that you need less. Um, when in fact, what's, what people actually want is more. And, and I think that becomes a, a huge handbrake to, to that whole movement. I wonder, um, which is unfortunate. I'll segue into Doug here. I mean, I think that's spot on, Cody. I think that 
there are a lot of incentives and there's a lot of misinformation and a lot of misconceptions about what great coaching is. And I've always tried to look beyond football specifically. Uh, and I looked into, you know, people like Doug. So I'm wondering maybe if I could segue into Doug, if you don't mind, I'm wondering, is that similar in teaching? I mean, are there trappings that seem seductively productive and yet are counterproductive to the essence of promoting learning and joy as an educator. I wonder if that crosses the boundaries beyond sport and into the classroom. I don't, I don't know, Doug, if you have any insight into that. Yeah, I think it absolutely does. I, I, it's exactly what I was thinking about while, uh, while you guys were talking, which was, um, I mean, maybe one of the, maybe one of the differences between coaching and, and teaching in, in classrooms is that, you know, in coaching, people are so explicitly looking for competitive advantage. But, you know, it's a little bit different in education. We're always looking to solve problems. And I think that there's a part of us that is drawn to new there, right? Like, so there, because there's so many, there's so many things changing and they see they're promising, right? There's technology and there's data and those both, you know, think about how those things affect sport. And so it's really easy to be drawn to those things as the, next competitive advantage but in many ways i think the like the true competitive advantages and the timeless things that great coaches and great teachers have always done which is you know well i think they probably coalesce around like how do i connect with people how, how do i explain things better how do i ask them questions how do you know how do i um uh focus their attention. I was, I've been thinking a lot about just video, for example, you know, just the, the rate of development of video tools that coaches can use is stunning. I had two experiences in the last, in the last couple of months working with a professional sports franchise in the US and internationally competed sport at the highest level. And I mean, the video tools that they have are stunning. At the, the professional franchise, you know, they like tape the morning practice. The guys rest for an hour and a half. They cut the video of the morning practice and show it to the guys before the afternoon practice. And they can see themselves in the morning before they go out in the afternoon. And at this national federation, they have a drone camera and they're looking at what the players are doing and they can double click on it and they, they can sync the drone image to like a ground level image. So they can do, let's take a look at what he's doing there. And they go down, you know, like they have these incredible tools. But the thing that strikes me is when they're reviewing the video with the players, you know, players are sitting in the room and they're not writing anything down. They're watching, they're watching the video. First, the coach is just talking them through, see this, see this, see this. And the players aren't really engaging their attention in thinking about the video. And there's no perceptive work, which is like, pause here. What do you see? There's none of that. It's just telling someone what they should see. But this is a coach who's watched the video six times. And so they know it really well. And the player's just trying to like orient themselves. <laughs> I, I just don't, and and they're not writing anything down. And so most of what they probably perceived about that video, well, a lot of it, you know, disappears into the ether of forgetting. And so like, here's this incredible technology, but the, the lever to using it is, you know, is as old as the hills, which is like, how do we talk to each other? What questions do we ask? Are we paying attention? Um, you know, am I building memory? So, I, you know, I think, uh, I think it's really true. And, 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 and to Todd's question, it's absolutely true of schools too. Yeah. I mean, 
Todd, earlier you used the word craft. And I mean, if you jump on my Twitter timeline for the last couple of weeks, you'll see that word come up a lot. I've been sitting with what our craft is for, for a little while. And, and again, I, I just keep coming back to when you think about whether it's the traditional idea, you know, masters of craft, you know, working with their hands or a more modern version around people that create. So musicians and filmmakers and people who, um, you know, are masters in those crafts. Simplicity is what stands out. And so if we're not aiming for that, we can't really call ourselves a craft, I, I don't believe. And, and again, like you can look to simply stunning ideas that, that are kind of right in front of us. When I was watching the Sir Alex Ferguson documentary, the one thing that stood out is it, it seems like almost a flippant comment from him, but he says, psychology is someone else's word. I call it management. So in what's that six or seven words, he has basically been able to grab <laughs> a craft and, and say, no, no, it's not psychology and, and, and all these things. And then I go and do this and it's different if they're this type of player. It's like, no, no, no. All we do is, is psychology. And, uh, you know, again, I, I think even in what we do, even amongst all the daily play, all the different games, all the things that swirl around us, we need to be aiming for that simplicity rather than going the other way around. Yeah, and I noticed, you know, one of the questions I get about the Tovo training, you know, methodology is, well, can I buy your drills, right? And I said, I said, that's just so far from what's going to be valuable, right? Because the drills have been available and you can download them at any moment. As you mentioned, you have access to those. It's the understanding, I think, what Doug touches upon about how do you establish the relationships? What are you trying to communicate? What's to be received by the player? What are they wrestling with? And how are you facilitating them through that process in really concrete and specific ways so their attention is focused on the efficacy of their you know, performances, uh, micro performances and grand performances. And I think if you think of in football specifically, I think many of us in football think our craft is a system of play, not how do we meaningfully impact another person's life so that they enjoy the game and develop within the game. So even defining what our craft is, is important. If we really believe that our craft is understanding tactical systems, then I think we miss the very point of being a coach, which is, as Alex mentioned, it's about human management, isn't it? And that can derail us from being, you know, learning what we need to learn as educators, coaches, and craftspeople. And I think that's where I think football and, and, and rugby and other sports, we need to look outside the environment of our sport and look to, and that's why I went seeking out Doug to look for master craftsmen, men and women who know something about maximizing human potential. And that has nothing to do with sport. And so sometimes we're too incestually encased in football when we really need to reach out to anybody who has ever been wonderful about maximizing another person's potential from music, art, dance, in any classroom worldwide. And some of the best leaders, perhaps, John Wooden maybe comes to mind, I think was focused on being an educator first. And he happened to coach basketball. 
was it, I probably got this quote, like half my quotes from Todd, but um, who was it that said, if, if all your players know is football, they don't know football. But I think it's, you know, like, I think what you're saying is the same for coaches, which is all, if all you know is the game, you don't really know game. And you have to, it's, it's a, to be able to teach, to be, to be able to, to teach the game and maximize people's relationship with the game, you really have to understand people and motivation and, uh, and, you know, just like the, that's what, you know, I have, I have several kids who played sport and ultimately the thing that they get out of it is, is like, what does it mean to work for something and to grow with something and to, and to struggle to learn something and appreciate, um, something that you love. Like that's, I think that's, you know, I think whether it's, whether, you know, whether it's, whether it's a kid an amateur or a professional, I think that's a lot of the, that's a lot of what the conversation is really about. Doug, when you're, I assume that if you're just working with teachers as well, I know as you cross over, uh, I'm curious, I mean, with teachers, when they become a teacher, I would assume take courses on how to teach young people. Maybe that's presumptuous. Or are they subject matter experts? And that's, I think, the distinction. I could be a subject matter expert in football and rugby and ice hockey, but does that make me a great educator when I'm trying to maximize somebody else's potential? I don't think they're necessarily synonymous. Of course, you need the knowledge of the sport. But if we're going to lack anything, I think I find in, in, my, in the football environment, I think we lack enough commitment to understanding how to teach another human being. That's just my personal opinion. Yeah, and I think that, you know, it's exacerbated by people often hired for their expert, their expertise and their credibility as a, as a player, right? They're a great player. And so they become a coach and that, you know, I think that's, that's a great thing. And many of those people really want to succeed in, in helping other people grow, but there's not much out there. <laughs> like, so, you know, there's just a long, long gap between intention and reality, which is, I would like to help people. You know, I talk about this all the time with teachers, which is no one, no one takes a job of teaching because they dream of being the person in front of the room, uh, shouting at kids and telling them to sit down. And that if they continue doing that, they'll, you know, no, nobody wants to be that person, but people end up becoming that, that person because it's really, really hard. And, you know, relationships and are often technique in disguise. And I think in coaching, you know, a lot of really capable people are thrown into work where big part of the sort of technique of how do I, how do I teach things and how do I make it accessible to people for whom it's less, less intuitive than me, those things never get discussed. And so, um, you know, talent, it's not just the athletes whose talent is often squandered by the field. It's often coaches too, or, you know, people who are coaching who could, who want to, and could do great things by kids. Cause back, you know, like you're, knowledge of the of the discipline is important um, but knowledge of the craft of, of you know the mundane the mundanities of teaching is also at least as important and much more easily overlooked you bring up a good point i think you know i always say to people that are on our courses i'm just having a conversation with my younger self right it's not about correct or incorrect or being the best or the worst or you know 
criticizing some decisions you might have made in the past. I'm having a conversation with my former self because I'm wrestling with the ideas that I used to hold dear and now I uh, question and maybe reformed or discarded altogether. And that's a healthy process, right? I mean, I wouldn't want to be the same, you know, coach that I was in my 20s now, in my 50s. I mean, God forbid, right? I mean, so I think we sometimes put this pressure on ourselves that we have to figure it out early and then we just have to consistently deliver it. I don't think that's what teaching as a craft has been about. I do believe with Doug that there's some tried and true, you know, core principles that the best teachers have always done. But when you switch environments and you switch cultures, as you just mentioned there, when you coach a sport to a different community, it's a different approach. It's a different way. And you still have to manage those people. But the people have changed or the culture has changed or the sport has changed. Right. So even if you can master the coaching and these these principles that Doug does aptly well in teaching, even then, if you're not attuned with the relationships. Then you can't just take the cookie, you know, cookie shelf and say, bam, you know, cookie cutter coaching. I do A, B, C, D, E and everybody's good because I have a, a new student, a new face, a new person in front of me. And I think Doug touches upon that whenever he's talking about teaching. You just made reference to it, Cody, as well in that story. If we don't see the person in front of us, we don't have a relationship from which we can depart. And I think that's something that took me a while to learn. I just thought if I was just consistent about what I was doing, it should be able to apply to all. But when you change cultures, things change quickly. And I was put under the fire and made many mistakes. And that's part of the process, right? Many mistakes, <laughs> many, many. Well, and quite different. You know, I, as you're talking there, I'm thinking of this is something that keeps coming back to me that I wrote about was, you know, Stephen Gerrard talking about his first presentation at Rangers and basically almost not being able to deliver it because he, he, you know, was so intimidated by standing up the front in the spotlight. This is someone who's given a speech like that to Rio Ferdinand, David Beckham, you know, his teammates that he's captaining and, and he stood up there in front of the dressing room and, and delivered it. And then you just take that basically that same person and you put them in now a teaching environment as a coach and you put a, a tie on them instead of a, a jersey. And the whole thing has changed, or at least his perception of, of what's required to succeed has changed. And so now you've got someone who's done thousands of team talks being intimidated to give a team talk because he's now the coach. And I think there's little nuance. This is the craft that we're talking about. There are nuances to this that are actually never talked about and, and not considered in training and, and, and how we kind of perceive the role which I think are quite interesting as well. Um, and just another thought there is the best, going back to you know, teaching the game in its simplest form, the best thing that I ever did was teach Aussie rules to Canadians, many of whom who'd never even seen it on television when they started playing. So, you know, I, I frame it as imagine that someone had never seen golf and you gave them a driver and you teed up a ball for them and said, what do you think you should do? <laughs> that was essentially where we were starting with a lot of these athletes, elite in, you know, youth sports or NCAA basketball, 
soccer, rugby, hockey, and then walk past the park and see two people kicking an Aussie rules ball and end up in, in the ecosystem, end up a lead at it and represent their country, but are still learning a completely foreign game that's only played professionally in one country. And that country only has 24 million people in it. You know, you really have to learn how to teach in as simplistic terms as possible uh, to do that. And I thought I knew how to coach before getting here. I knew nothing. I knew nothing. I could only teach it to people who already knew it. And so I'm, I'm kind of a little bit ashamed of, of that, but I, I also think at the same time, if you're not ashamed of your old coaching, you, you're, uh, <laughs> you're also struggling a little bit. Yeah. Doug, I'd like to pick up on that because I'd like to add to that. If you don't mind, um, the significance of tone. So you take those words and you express them in a different tone and you affect the learning process. And I find it disturbing when it's done poorly. And I find it encouraging and inspirational when that tone and that vocabulary combines with the genuine nature of its intent. And too often, I think on the sidelines, and I know I was victim, not a victim of this, I was, uh, you know, I, I lost sight of this on occasion in the heat of the battle. Not only the meaning of the word and the consistency of that meaning, but the tone in which it's delivered to me seems profoundly important. I'm really glad you asked about words because um, I think they're hugely underestimated. <laughs> Just the, you know, the profound importance of vocabulary in teaching is, is hugely underestimated. And, you know, Todd was asking before about the, about, you know, sort of analogies between coaching and the classroom. And this is another place where I think that vocabulary is really misunderstood. You know, um, oftentimes, so I, it's, I just think that like to be able to understand a concept, you almost have to have a word for it, right? That W.H. Uh, Auden says that, you know, language is, is, um, not the handmaiden of thought, but the mother of thought that, you know, when you have, when you have a word for it, you can conceptualize something. And so, um, but, you know, like to understand a vocabulary word, uh, lots of times in schools, we might teach it as a synonym. Um, mimic means to imitate. But the interesting thing about it is like, so those words overlap like 80 to 90% in their meaning, but the important part is the 10% that doesn't overlap that like to, to mimic has like a pejorative that imitate doesn't necessarily have. And so if you read that in a passage, like the word mimic would signal to you that someone is making fun of someone, someone else and is mocking them. And so it's actually, it's the subtleties <laughs> to, to understand a word. You have to have come across it 20, 30 times in different settings and to understand how the word changes. I'm just thinking about that with like a word, like a phrase, like breaking lines, being in space, or, um, you know, there's so many, I think the communicating clearly begins with choosing your words carefully and intentionally. You know, my, my daughter spent a year at a club learning to receive the ball side on and then another year learning to receive the ball on the half turn. And I don't think she ever associated that those two things were the same thing. And so half of her experiences did not coalesce with the other half just because like there's this huge opportunity for a club or a coach to be intentional about like, what's the word for, what's the word for this thing? And do we all want to use it? Um, and then if I plan my words, if I think about my words as a cue, Right. If I can make them simple and I can make them part of the teaching process, 
then I can use them to remind if I'm consistent about them, then I can use them to remind athletes about that idea. But hopefully I want to be reminding them of like a deep, deep, rich idea that they've had 50 or 60 experiences with. So when I cue them to say space or, or, you know, um, delay that they, their understanding of what that word means is profound. So I have to be really intentional about connecting those words to experiences and using words consistently and, and cueing things. So then I just think that words often tend to be an afterthought. So like a starting point for me, for a club that wanted to get better would be to make a vocabulary list. What are the most important terms that we use? What do they mean to us? You know, let's build out a rich definition of them and then let's use them consistently and think about how we want to have that concept deep, not peripherally understood, but deeply understood by our athletes. And we often under, we often presume that kids understand a word like pressure, but like you could spend your life, <laughs> like or press, like you could spend your life understanding what press means and how it changes in different situations. Me too. Uh, Doug, I want to ask you this. So let's keep going on this theme a little bit. You say, you know, first is the plan. The second is the words. Can we talk about the words? How do we get to simple, meaningful words that are actually communicating what it is that we're trying to communicate rather than in a lot of our sports, because a lot of the, the nuances that it, nuance of it is handed down the words come down with it and get regurgitated too much so how do we disrupt that pattern and get to the ones that we're actually trying to get across to people i think it's spot on uh i did a podcast with dan abrahams a couple months ago uh a sports psychologist i think i learned more in that podcast than i shared but he had he just said you know he had this great phrase he said the psychosocial is always with us I think that's a, this is a great example of it, you know, that if you deliver a word with emotional constancy, um, you know, John Wooden has this, this great phrase about, you know, what it's teaching. He says it's, it's knowing the difference between I taught it and they learned it. And so that's a bi-directional process, right? So if my athletes are trying to hide from me the things that they don't understand because they, they actually want to fool me into thinking that they understand when they don't because they're afraid to be exposed for making a mistake, then it's 10 times, it's a hundred times harder for me to understand the gaps. And so if I, you know, I, my tone is press, we've been talking about press all week, you guys, when a guy makes a mistake, right? That says hide your, hide your mistakes from me, keep it a secret. And that my job just got 10 times harder versus if I say something like, so glad I saw, <laughs> so glad I saw this mistake. It's going to help me to help you, or it's going to help us on I'm glad we saw the mistake now. Some things we there's some things I want to lock down about what it means to press, right? That emotional constancy helps build an environment. I, I think my favorite phrase for this is culture of error, which is a combination of psychological safety. It's okay to make mistakes, you know, it's okay to be wrong. Um, and and an actual genuine interest in errors, which is like when we study our mistakes, that's how we learn. It's a it's a good thing. And actually it's kind of fascinating because oftentimes we make mistakes for you know for useful and viable reasons and so let's let's make it safe to talk about them without encouraging people to feel defensive <laughs> uh about, you know when they're reminded of things so i i just i really i just really like that reminder of the tone is as, the tone is as important as the vocabulary well i'll just tell a funny story and i'll come back to you cody but so my my youngest daughter just started playing and uh the coach used the vocabulary term that we would 
be familiar with in football, which is open, to open, abre. They say a lot in here in Spain, abre, which means open the field. So get wide, basically, to move yourself to the side, right? Um, and my daughter just stood there and she was nodding. Didn't move, but she was nodding and happy. A couple minutes after that, the whistle blows. It's halftime. But she doesn't know what halftime is. <laughs> She hasn't experienced halftime, never mind the word abre. She was just happily nodding. And so there was this agreement that she understood. I said, well, why are you nodding? She says, I don't know. She was just nodding, right? And I said, do you know what halftime is? And she said, no. I said, that's the split between, you know, this time. And she was just happily in the middle of the field. Literally both teams went to the sidelines. And the whistle blew. So she just thought it was another penalty. And she didn't know what it was because when the whistle blows, there's a penalty or a foul. So she just was the only girl left on the field because she didn't even understand what halftime was. It was wonderfully endearing, but it just reminds me of what you're talking about. Some of the things we take for granted, or Cody, you mentioned that you would take for granted with your wealth of experience, a Canadian who's new to this sport wouldn't even understand that basic vocabulary. And I think it's a really you know, stark reminder to, to make sure we question is the vocabulary that we're using uh, and the tone we're using um, accomplishing what we think it is? And how would we know that? Because we're already experts in that vocabulary. And I don't know if, you know, I don't know how you deal with that, Cody, when you're taking that on into, uh, you know, new sports and new domains and with the experience you've seen, if you run into people that just nail that better than others. I know I've made that stake so many times. I think that story is beautiful and telling because it plays out, you know, over and over again. I think what cognitive scientists call this is the curse of knowledge, which is when you know something, the things that are not clear to other people are, <clears throat> are hidden to you. I did this exercise in, uh, when I was preparing to write one of my books about teaching, which is I, I took one of those like diagrams of a cell, like a cross section of a cell that a, a biology teacher might show to a class. And I showed it to a bunch of biology teachers and was like, okay, so what, what do you understand about this that might not be obvious to a student? And they came up with this whole list of like, okay, this is like uh, the organelles in here, these are cross sections are not what they really look like. And actually their shapes all vary widely and they are moving around the cell. And none of these things would be obvious to a, a science student. And so when we're expert in something, we always have to be aware of like all the blind spots that we now have about what people who understand less about the endeavor don't understand. And the sort of the version of your daughter's story that I was thinking of was uh, it was at one of my daughter's soccer tournaments and the outside back was way out of position, you know, uh, and the coach is yelling, stay connected, stay connected. And I'm just watching her behavior. She had no idea what that phrase meant, right? Because it was obvious to him, stay connected closer to, you know, she didn't stay connected to whom, how, where should I be? You know, so immediately there, you know, several minutes later, there was a goal uh, because she wasn't connected, but I think it goes back to your point about language. Like he, the coach needs to take time to say, okay, if I'm going to use this phrase, I have to explain it first. Otherwise, it's not fair to it's not fair to shout things um, at people and expect them to understand what I mean. And there's so many phrases like this that, could, that come up, right? Which is I had not anticipated that you would not know what stay connected means or central. Do you mean central to the you know the midline vertically or horizontally or horizontally across the field? Right. That's Seen a lot of eight-year-olds, ten-year-olds, twelve-year-olds confused by that. I was just going to chime in for a second. Like, it's not, and it's even beyond. You know, uh, the beauty of, uh, of your daughter or my daughter being lost. Uh, 
with great smiles and ambition. You know, sometimes we misinterpret based upon the language that isn't clear. I've done that on too many occasions where it was clear to me and it wasn't clear. And then I made the secondary mistake of assuming that it was something other than my lack of capacity to communicate clearly. I attached an emotion to it, or I attached some sort of rebellion to it on the side of the learner, or some sort of apathy, or some sort of some sort of intent that was never part of that relationship, because I was not clear. I did not establish that vocabulary list, and I then read too much beyond that. We had a player at Ajax when, when uh, Johan was, uh, Kreif was re reorganizing and restructuring. We made uh, certain assumptions about players based upon performance, but we didn't look at the whole player behind to know, are there things with the family at home? Are there things with nutrition that might affect? So sometimes we would interpret something to be apathy or lethargy or lack of commitment or lack of drive or just not IX material. And in one case, we found out the boy was vitamin D deficient. Well, guess what? What are some of the symptoms of being vitamin D deficient? It's lack of energy, right? And so this interpretation that we get back sometimes can be more crippling to me as a coach and certainly not beneficial to the player. So I think, you know, thinking of what you're saying about not only the language, the common language, the well-defined language, but I think what I take from that also, as you mentioned, this has to be repeated more, probably exponentially more, many more times than I think it would need be to be understood. Is that a correct assumption? It's not just one or two, three times using the word pressure or central or breaking the lines. I imagine this is something the first time they're wrestling with, and it's going to take several times to understand what that means to them at a point that they can execute it fluidly. Is that a correct assumption? I mean, I think, I think it's spot on, but you know, uh, Cody, you were asking before about things that pe people take away from um, the coach's guide to teach you know, I think one of the other big ones is the forgetting curve, which is just the rate at which people forget things, not because they're not paying attention and they don't care and they're not motivated, but those can, things can exacerbate forgetting but because they're human. And that's what humans do. And we've actually known this since the late 1800s, which is the difference between performance and learning is performance is what you can do in the midst of studying something and learning, <clears throat> learning what you, is what you remember days later. So we're working on building out of the back in a training session and we've been focusing on it for 40 minutes. And at the end of the session, my guys are doing it really well. And my sense is, oh, they've learned it, but they haven't learned it yet because I haven't accounted for forgetting, which is one of the strongest forces in, in learning. And it's a tireless and ruthless opponent. And as soon as they walk off the field, they start to, they start to forget. And the next day they will have forgotten a significant portion of it. And by the game on Saturday, unless I review and come back to it and bring it back into working memory through retrieval practice, which I think, which is where Todd is going. Like um, on Saturday, the psychosocial will emerge and I'll be like, guys, we talked about pressing. I will believe that you know how to press because I'll, I've seen you do it on Tuesday. So now my explanation is you don't want it bad enough. You're not motivated. You don't concentrate. You don't care. You're not like I was when I was a player. But in fact, the problem is, is forgetting that to be able to really have it encoded and accessible in long-term memory well enough to be able to use it in the game. I have to come back to it five, six, seven, eight times spread out over three, four, five weeks. It's a long-term process <laughs> to, to really learn things. So if I see players get it right in training once, I'm kidding myself, but I think they have it. Um, and I just think that that, 
Todd, you're pointing that out is really, <laughs> it's, a, it's a big deal. So most of what we learn, we lose, right? And if you, if you doubt me, have kids wait 15 years and try and help them with their history homework. <laughs> but I think we, we learned that lesson over and over in coaching, right? We think we've got something. And a week later, it's gone. We've had that, and Cody, you've had. I mean, we've had that exposure, right? As experts, and I use that term much more loosely with myself than you two. I mean, we've had, you know, how I don't know how old how old I was when I started first with ice hockey and then with soccer. I mean, I've had this terminology and this experience in so many matches over so many years, in so many conventions, in so many conferences, and so many books read. I mean. I don't probably recognize how many times I've been exposed to these football terms that have encoded them and embedded them. So you're right. I may be, maybe I'm handicapped by my own expertise, meaning my own exposure to a concept. And I don't allow that young player enough time or energy because I think I've taught it. So they learned it. That's one of the, one of the, I remember in a faculty meeting when I was teaching Years ago, someone said, well, I can't help it. I was a math teacher. I'll go nameless, but uh, it said, well, I can't help it if they don't get it. I taught it. You know, it was kind of a justification for this next generation that just doesn't care and isn't going to study math and, you know, everything that's wrong with them. Right. And that was the justification. You know, I taught it. So it's not my fault that they didn't learn it. And I thought, well, is, is can you really teach something without learning be associated with it. <laughs> I think that's really a fundamental question, right? Teaching is nothing without the learning, if I, you know, as I interpret it. What's the definition of teaching? <laughs> to set it or to ensure mastery of it? That's a great, that's a great point. Yeah, and even worse than that is we, we actually set them up for that scenario so that I, I told you this, you guys weren't able to, to execute it, but I did my part right? Like there's, there's traps that are set for the players to pass the buck onto them. It's the other way around. And this is actually where I wanted to go with this because scrawled across the back of my book, it says the biggest uh, barrier to performance is you. And that's directed as at the head coach. And like Doug, you, you used the word blind spot earlier and we are our own biggest blind spot in this whole thing. And I think this is where a lot of these, issues stem from is is ourselves and our own armor and inability to not only challenge kind of what we've learned uh whether it's getting across or even just our concepts of the game you know to go back to our conversation about space and and what you said Todd, like that is not a far reach at all <laughs> you know it, it's on the table already and and then on top of that i see in the professional game like this intensity and anxiety that's attached to performance like this must do itis we must do this we must train this amount of times it must look like this you must show x amount of energy to be an iax player and then in reality it's all a guessing game when you speak to coaches they're like oh, i tried this i pulled this lever it didn't work so we went and pulled this one and I wasn't quite sure about this substitution, but it actually worked. But I'm not sure whether that's what worked or whether it was the cohesion of the back four now because I made. <laughs> and so, again, like I think we can actually let go a little bit to start this process, let go of that must-do-itis. My message is it doesn't need to look like anything. Like I speak to soccer coaches and I say, if I want to run a 10-on-10 one 
on one for the whole game, which is what we sometimes do in Aussie rules on a soccer field, there's no rule precluding me from doing that. We don't need to be interlocking zones. I can go 1v1 versus your 10 outfield players and, and, and if it looks like that, it looks like that. And so it doesn't need to look like anything and training doesn't need to look like anything and teaching doesn't need to look like anything. It's whatever we make it into. So we're our own biggest barrier there. I think it comes back. You asked me a question about, you know, maybe being out of the norm. <laughs> I think you, I think, I think you meant it as a compliment, but I think most people may not. I'm just going to take it slate here. Somebody just take it as a compliment rather than just being a crazy bird on the outside of reality here. But what I, I come back to, and this comes full circle now that Doug mentioned it, it comes back to our assumptions around language. And I'll give you an example. I ask coaches very quickly, name the fundamentals of football. And invariably, I will get passing, receiving, shooting, dribbling, and heading. And I say, can I expand those fundamentals? Can I share some that I received from Johan Cruyff, for example? Have you ever heard about angles, distance, timing, lines, and situation? When you were young, when they taught you the fundamentals of the game, did they teach you angles, distance, timing, lines, and situation? Invariably, they say no. And I say, so just by defining fundamentals of a game, you can limit the interpretation of the game and also how we can interpret to teach the game. So I ask people in the courses, I say, are you willing to expand the definition of fundamentals to include perception and conception or scanning and choosing and executing and to engage obviously those technical skills, but to couple them with an understanding and an execution of angles, distance, timing, lines, and situation. Because the moment I can get a coach to expand the fundamentals is the moment I can get them to think beyond what it's supposed to look like or what it always looked like or what it looked like when it was done to me, which is the biggest break from tradition that I'm trying to ask people to rethink and redesign. And ultimately, if we come full circle to where you started, fantastic. But if I can't get a coach to redefine fundamentals, they're not going to move off of a ter traditional interpretation as must-do-itis. I like that term. What does your daughter's coach think about who he's coaching just out of interest? Does he know? Yeah, they know. <laughs> if I bring the kids home to the United States, they, they don't know. Uh, but I literally, I was, I was at a tournament and my son was eight years old and I went to get a butifat. It's a nice kind of uh, nice hot grilled sandwich. And uh, the guy, you know, says, Hey, he pulls me aside. He says, see the blonde boy over there. That's Christ's grandson. And I say, Oh, wow. I'll have to take a look at him. <laughs> so in, in Barcelona, you know, Kreif has a pretty heavy weight, so they know. Um, it's a it's it's a blessing for our children, obviously, because it comes with great honor and great privilege. Um, and it is a burden as a young person because it's a weight that they carry that other children might not on any given match or any given weekend. The performance, the expectation, the pressure, the name associated, the greatness associated with the name. And so it's interesting. But for my nine-year-old, the beauty is that 
she's just so wonderfully engaged and happy that now she's oblivious to any pressure that fall. I hope she stays as innocent for as long as possible. I, I met, uh, I met at least digitally Doug's daughter and uh, an, a wonderful daughter. And I think we both agree if we can just keep our ch children as innocent and as open and as positively engaged in sport and study for as long as possible, we've probably done pretty well as parents, but it, it's, it, <laughs> it keeps me busy with six children here. Yeah, no kidding. Um, and that's it's such a great point. You guys have talked about it a couple of times with the, the joy of what we do. And that's the other piece that I think is actually missing in coaching. I don't see a lot of people at, at my level that actually enjoy it. And yes, that comes with some of the incentives, you know, the uncertainty and the moving your family around and the, uh, you know, moving your, moving your kids to the fourth city in the last two years and, and all of that. That's unfortunately part and parcel of uh, elite coaching now. But also just on top of that, it doesn't seem to be that sense of joy that is coming through. And coaches create their teams. And so the players aren't going to feel that joy. It's got to come from you. This is why I love, this is why I love talking to people about like Steve Kerr having joy as one of the values, not because it's a value, because it is him. You know, I get sent people's values, coaching values to have a look at all the time. And my first question is, where are you in this? Not, not where's James Kerr and the All Blacks? not where's Steve Kerr and the Golden State Warriors, not what you've ripped off, not Johan Cruyff. Where are you and what do you believe? Because that's what's going to come through. And, and so, yeah, I, I think more of us actually needs to come out of, of what we're coaching and, you know, less YouTube and, and reading legacy. I was just going to say, you mentioned of this must do. I think there's also this must be-itis. Can I use that? Can I take that and, and throw it back at you? Yeah. I mean, I, I think there's a perception, and it's only a misperception, Cody, that as we go up the coaching ranks, we have to become more professional, more serious, uh, more disciplined, more must be-itis, right? And what I found refreshing in, in coming to Barcelona and I'll never forget this. Johan's instructions to the physio, uh, for the physical trainer was, I want to see them fit and I want to see them laughing. I want to see them fit. I'll be able to tell on Sunday. And I'll know that they're having fun because they're laughing while they're becoming fit. Now, if that is the standard at the highest level of the game, certainly that can bleed down into youth sports. I want to see them laughing. I want to see and feel that joy. And I think we have this must be itis in coaching that we don't give ourselves the liberty to recognize this is a joyful event, win, lose, or draw. This is joy that we bring, that we share, and that we nurture, and that we inculcate. And I think there's a misperception about what a coach is and has to be. And I think we can very easily, because it's seductive, to get drawn into that myth about elite coaching. That it's something that I would hope young coaches can steer away from to the benefit of their own sanity and, and health and to the health of the players with, which, with whom they're working. I, I want to let you go, Doug, but I just want to add on top of that. This is actually, I wrote down in my diary uh, this week, I hate war analogies for sport and, and it is, it is 
off the back of what you just talked about there, Todd, is that I see the similarities and I understand it and we can learn a lot from the way that they uh, do uh, run their operations. But we are doing what we're doing because war doesn't exist. And so, uh, you know, we get to play sport because there is no war. And so, uh, you know, I think that that kind of is grabbing onto that. This is a joyful event and we get to do this and it should be like this and, and it should give all of us joy, not heart palpitations because we're the coach. <laughs> I have a double book recommendation. One is um, I've actually been reading a lot about happiness um, because happiness is such a profound influence on performance. And uh, Sean Aker has this really fascinating book called The Happiness Advantage. And, and one of the things he actually talks about is like, what are the components of happiness? Um, and a couple of the things that, you know, like there are actually a lot of different versions of joy. And it often includes like playfulness and, and things that we might distinguish as fun, which I think is really important. And there's a lot of data on the fact that it actually improves performance and people do better when they're happy. But it also, I think, include like there are sort of less acknowledged parts of happiness. And one of them is purpose, which is why I was just going to go back to Todd's book, which I think starts with like, why am I a coach? What do I want to accomplish, you know, beyond wins and like beyond wins and losses? What's my purpose? Because I think, you know, we like feeling a sense of purpose is one of the most profound. It's, it's a quieter form of joy, but it's one of the most profound feelings of joy for, for coach. And I think if you want to make the work sustainable, it has to start with your, your why, which is, um, that's one of the most powerful things that I took from, from Todd's book because you really ask people to start there. And then the other sense thing that builds a sense of joy is just a, a profound sense of belonging, which is like, you know, um, I talk a little bit about just like the research on human evolution and evolutionary biology. And, uh, and I try to talk about it in Coach's Got Teaching just because I find it so fascinating. But, you know, when we think of evolution, we often think of it as an individual effort, like that we evolved and were successful because we um, have a big brain and opposable thumbs. But you could have a, if you were alone on the savanna for prehistoric times and you had a big brain and opposable thumbs, you were dead unless you had a group of people who you coordinated with and collaborated with. And uh, you know, to some degree, you competed within that group, but your belonging in that group was evolutionarily critical to you. And so the, you know, we're of we're evolved to be drawn to feel and, and crave belonging in groups. And I think that's a lot of like what sport is about is like recreating that struggle to both have meaning inside the group, but also cause the group to, to succeed. So um, I definitely agree about, about joy. And I think, I think it's a combination of like fun, purpose and belonging and like, and, and the, and the balance of those three things. You know, I talked to my kids a lot growing up that like, yeah, soccer should be fun. And it's more fun when you're committed to the team and you feel a sense of, and you, you feel a sense of belonging to them. And when you know a little bit more and you feel like, you know, what you're trying to do on the field. Um, so, uh, um, you know, I think <laughs> happiness is, is, is both really important but also kind of sometimes oversimplified. I think there are a lot of, a lot of like pieces to it. I think that's part of the craftsmanship or craftspersonship, I should say, in that it isn't that I imagine it's the same in the classroom, dog, and you've seen in sports, and, and Cody, you've seen sports worldwide. Aren't the greatest educators capable of creating that sense of connection 
that sense of belonging, the sense of I feed into and off of this collective? Yeah, I, I mean, absolutely. I mean, I think that sense of like, who I talk about this, I think it's the most over, one of the most important things and one of the most overlooked things in a great classroom, which is, you know, so often kids are asked, what do you think about the novel? So they're asked to talk about something that's meaningful to them and they're looking around the classroom at a, you know, just imagine a room full of kids who are slouched in their chairs, looking out the window, looking at their phones and their body language says, I don't give a damn what you're saying right now. Who in their right mind offers a piece of themselves in that environment? But like a great teacher would do little things to socialize a sense of community, which is like after someone speaks, they would make sure that the next person made reference to what the previous person said, which is like, which is a way of saying your words matter. They didn't just hang in the air awkwardly, like people responded to them, which makes you feel like, makes you feel belonging. And they would probably do things like ask students to, you know, many of the teachers that are profile in my teaching book would do things like ask students to look at each other and, and nod and send pro-social signals, even though sometimes you don't feel like it. Because when someone looks at you and nods as you're talking, it says, I care about what you're saying. It's good. You know, please continue to do it. And I think, you know, people are always reading those very subtle social cues. I just think it's, you know, a great classroom from the great teachers that I've studied is first and foremost a culture that signals to people what their relationship is to the endeavor of school. And I think it's probably, in a lot of cases, it's probably not much different in in the sports setting as well. I think you're spot on there. We spend, you know, we have kids come over and they're with us. We have 20 kids now in, in, in residence here in a hostel and, I, I talk to coaches about this. I cannot tell you how much time and energy and thought goes into every detail about building community. It's, it's literally the first thing we do is we circle with one another and we embrace and we start to share our individual stories. And we start to individually and collectively talk about what my journey to extraordinary looks like right now you know, be as ambitious and don't share what you think you're supposed to share and the walks that they take and the ice cream breaks that we take and the training in an intense environment that we do and the shaking hands and the the, the, the group work. And if I say that I work on tactics, I would say that I work on community story and belonging to our Tovo family as we even use that term exponentially more than I talk about breaking the lines and it pays off. I can just say it pays off tremendously because I always tell my coaching staff, we are basically in the business of advocacy and energy. We can discuss football all day, but really we're in the business of advocacy and energy. When people leave, when our young children and their parents evaluate this experience, They're going to forget everything about that energy with which they leave, that bonding that took place, the new brothers and sisters that are added to their family portfolio. And they're going to forget, you said the forgetting curve, they're not going to forget that feeling as quickly as they forget my 433 formation. And I think I couldn't couldn't advise more to young coaches to spend exponential amount of time and energy into every detail, word, and action that promotes that sense of community because the dividends are remarkable. I think there's something really telling and Todd's story about building culture at Tovo because 
it's one of the things I think I learned most about in sort of in studying coaches, which is you're always building coach culture, whether in the moments when you realize that you're building culture and you bring the guys in, you're like, guys, we have to work together. And the moments when you don't realize that you're building culture, when you're eating meals together or you're, you know, um, you're establishing communication habits and locker room habits. And what does it mean to leave the locker room? What does it mean to, you know, are we going to clean this place up when we leave it? How are we going to talk to each other here? Like, is it okay to shout at each other when we're frustrated? Um, you know, I just like all those, all those moments, the sort of stray moments that are outside when you intentionally think you're talking about culture, you're probably building culture even more. And I think you, know, you look at great coaches and the way that they talk to staff in the building, you know, and they're, uh, just remember so profoundly visiting Jesse Marsh, who I think is a really great coach when he was at New York Red Bulls and just the way that he interacted with, you know, um, so appreciative of the kit man always and never walked by him like he was, um, you know, and somehow like secondary to the endeavor. I just think uh, that model of like always building cultures is, is really, uh, is profound to organizations and, and teams especially. I think that's really, really interesting. That, that story resonates with me because it's a story that Johan uh, mentioned to me about the locker room in Barcelona when he first arrived. Um, he noticed that the tape, the socks, the clothing were just left all over the place. And so his first order of business was tomorrow, I want to see this locker room completely different. I want you to take off your socks and put them into the bin. I want this to be a clean place. Interesting enough, what happens? Two days later, the kit man comes and says, are you going to fire me? He says, no, you're doing a great job. Why? He says, because my job was to go around, pick that up. And Yohan said, no, your job isn't to pick it up. Your job is to clean it and prepare it for tomorrow's training. Of course, you're an important part of this puzzle. Their job is to get you their dirty clothes in the bin where it belongs because it's a sign of respect to you. And that may be a detail of what Barcelona, does that make a difference in winning, you know, four league titles? I think you and I would agree and Cody would agree, yes. Is it a detail? Yes. Is it solving world hunger? No. Is it building culture in the detail? Yes. It's our job to communicate what's acceptable here and build the norms within our individual culture recognizing another coach's culture could be completely different and i think that's important. but you're never not building it yeah exactly yeah. that's great yeah and i think it's it's interesting that we all wrote about belonging owen eastwood wrote a book about belonging kind of all at the same time like if you were to ask me what people latched onto from the tough stuff that i didn't expect it was the last chapter is called tactics don't really matter it's not a chapter about tactics at all it's a chapter about facilitating belonging in groups and you know the only thing that i would add to what you guys have been talking about is it's not just the the circle and the vulnerability and the sharing if you don't change the incentives that go along with it like if if your culture and your belonging is one errant pass away from collapsing because everyone turns and snaps back into soccer mode. Why didn't you pass it to me? And they shake their hands at each other and they yell at each other. If you're one pass away from it collapsing, you don't have belonging. You might be on the path to it, but you don't quite have it. And so you've got to change the rest of that ecosystem with it. Otherwise everyone devolves into what we've been in the past. 
I, Cody, you bring up a good point because I think there's another myth out there that you can only build culture if you're at the top of the table. The winning culture, right? So we associate any team that's won, we want to replicate because they won a title. I have been on teams that have not won anything and have built relationships that have lasted me a lifetime thus far. So it's not synonymous with your position in the table. There are great leaders and great cultures that are established by those leaders in teams at the middle of the table and even potentially at the bottom of the table. I've been at the top of the table as a young coach, and the next year I moved to Hawaii with a new team, and we were at the bottom of the table. I might have been a better coach with more losses than I was with more wins. And so that's another myth that we can build culture of respect and community and belonging, even if we didn't take home this trophy for the number of goals we scored against opponents. I think that's a myth that's perpetuated too often and too profoundly in the minds of young coaches. What they really mean there is that the players and the coaches and the staff found some sense of meaning in the winning and meaning as a collective. They're not talking about culture because I, I agree with you. I've seen some rancid cultures that have won the ultimate prize and, and quite frankly, actually had kind of sustained success in some instances. And so those players, we, we say that that's great culture and that's belonging, but they're tied to the achievement. I don't think they're necessarily tied to each other. That's what we're trying to get to where you're tied to each other regardless of the outcome. Um, and, and that's really the process that, that you're going through around sharing who you are and where you come from and, and building community, building your own internal community, going out into the community. That's those linkages in between that I think, uh, you know, you were talking about as being just so incredibly rich, Todd, like the, the linkages between people when they get to that level, when you've seen it, this is why I talk about it with such passion is because when you see it, you're like, this is the most magical thing in humanity, the, the link between the individuals in this group. And you just want everyone else to kind of experience that. Are there barriers, Doug, in, in, in starting out with this? Again, I'm thinking I'm going back in my mind as a younger coach or younger version of myself. And I'm wondering how and, and Cody, you jump in on this as well. Like, what have you seen? Like, what are some of the first steps? Are there common steps, or is it unique to the coach in the way that she would create this culture? Or are there, like you mentioned earlier, uh, Doug, some common principles or themes that run through many coaches who create that sense of identity and belonging to one another? Can I ask you how you think about the? You probably know more coaches. You've, <laughs> Christian, or you'd start answering your own question. My sense to start, I'm just thinking of the great, not just, as I say coaches, I don't just mean football coaches, I think teachers. I come back, I come back, to, and I want to look more and more into this, and I want to explore this maybe some point with you, Doug, in, in greater depth, but I come back to the term advocacy. I really believe, I mean, I'm talking about young people. So Cody, maybe there's, maybe there's divorce between this at the upper levels, I don't know. But I, I think of young people, I think anytime I've had somebody that I felt was my advocate leading math or science or art or football or ice hockey, I was quicker to offer myself to the group because I felt like I had someone in my corner. 
I didn't have someone throwing up their hands and said, I said pressure on Monday. Why don't you get it on Saturday? I think the best coaches that I've had, and I don't know if this is consistent. It might just be my personal experience. I come back to that term advocacy. And I felt that they were advocating for me as a person and me, of course, as a student athlete. That's, that's my sensation as a thinking back as an athlete or as a student. And I wonder if great teachers and great coaches at all levels have the capacity or just innately or through technique really believe that they are the advocates of their players, advocates of their children, even if they don't perform to the standard that they would like on Saturday. I don't know if you have thoughts around that, but I keep coming to that word, advocacy. Yeah, I think that's a really profound, it's a profound word and probably, I think it's really, I think it's true. I think, I was just thinking about the word relationships and how, and how important they are and that one of the ways that someone comes to, that we come to feel that someone is an advocate for us is both what they say, but also like their capacity to teach us well and make us and make us better, right? Which is I say, I believe in you and I care about you. And then I help you to accomplish your, your goals. I think those are both parts of advocacy. And then, yeah, I think, I think it's absolutely true. And then maybe the one thing I would add to that in terms of like, where do you start? I'm a, I'm a real believer in ritual and tradition. And I think that a lot of the best teachers that I see really try and signal there are ways that we do things here. This culture is different and try and signal that like when you enter this culture, it is distinctive, right? It has a little bit of a fence around it and having little rituals and traditions, I think reminds, reminds people of that. And often, and I think it's important because a lot of times those rituals and traditions are about like selflessness and I don't get to enter. I don't, I cause myself to interact with the people around me, not in a way that's like most, in, most self-actualizing some more, you know, selfish, but is actually, about accepting the, the rules of the institution or the expect or the goals of the institution. And so often when people think about, when people talk about relationships in the classroom, I think they often oversimplify them. And that when, when a student says, I love this teacher, I have a great relationship with her. What they mean is in part, I have a great relationship with her and in part, I have a great relationship with the, with the culture that she's built around me. And when I say I love Mrs. Jones as a teacher, in part of what I'm saying is I love the way that I'm treated and the way that I feel when I'm in her space. And that's a combination of like her efficacy, her ability to teach me and her advocacy for me and my sense that she believes in me and her ability to shape the environment so that the people around me also treat me with dignity and respect and caring and thoughtfulness so that like I call that Miss Miss Jones, but really it's the it's the it's the culture that she's built around me and her attentiveness. So you know, I just go back to your point about like your net all the details that you pointed out about how you build culture at Tovo. You're never not building culture. And people say, oh I love my coach, but I'm sure, but often what they're describing is that they love the culture that they're that they're inside. And their name for that is is the is they name an individual, but really what they're describing is how it feels to be a part of a place that has rituals and traditions that are intentionally built to create belonging. So I think like the starting point is almost like saying here, let's start with a ritual, which signals to you the importance of like things are things are different here. We have a way of doing things. 
we, we, I use the term lateral learning, and I don't know really what that means, except for I say that many of these actions that I try to create, for example, we're about a 30-minute walk along a beautiful Mediterranean Sea to the training stadium here in Barcelona. And initially, my staff said, oh, people that come, they're not going to walk. And I said, well, they will walk because I'm not going to drive them, <laughs> right? Interestingly enough, I cannot tell you how many kids and coaches have visited value that walk, that 30 minutes along the Mediterranean Sea with one of their peers. I have nothing to do with it other than that I forced that to happen by not driving them, which would be the convenient thing to do. And we could get on our headphones and not connect with one another. And so that's the orchestration that I try to work toward and say, it's not that I am Miss Jones, an authority figure in every act or every deed, but I'm going to set up certain acts and certain deeds and certain rituals and routines that will facilitate that environment to be nurtured. So you will walk. I drive because I got to get my kids. I'm not part of that process, right? Because it's important that I'm not part of that process. So that there is lateral learning and lateral bonding. So those relationships be nurtured without the authority figure involved. And I think good coaches and good teachers create those rituals, probably in part to allow that to happen without them being the central figure. I'm not sure if you've seen that. That's the, that's the test of culture, right? What is this cult? Does it, does it work when you're not there? And I think the walk is a great example of a ritual, right? It's a routine imbued with meaning. And then suddenly it becomes... It's probably so unexpected to kids. They probably think, oh, I don't want to walk, but, you know, but by the end of it, it's the thing that they love. Yeah. Yeah. A couple of thoughts here. I, I actually recorded, I believe it was on Dan Abraham's podcast actually as well. When Mike Gervais is talking about the Seattle Seahawks, his, his initial reaction and the reaction was, Oh, it's different there. And I love that because it makes you think, well, how is it different here? What rituals do we have? Who can we become when we're here at any club, anywhere in the world? And, uh, yeah, I just I grabbed him talking about it. You can even hear in his voice that it was different there when people had said that. And um, I'll, I'll leave us with this because I, I think we're going to have to wrap up. But, you know, we're, we're talking after you know Steve Bruce was let go from from Newcastle United and and Alan St Maximin posted about their individual relationship on on his Twitter this afternoon and, and here's what he said you are without doubt one of the most gentle people that I've ever met in the world of football you have been a man of your word a caring man and a fair man who never hesitated to protect us I'll never forget how you treated me for that I will for, be forever grateful and there's some key words in there, isn't there? There's, there's caring and fair and, and no hesitation in protecting the group, which is the very essence of a leader. That, that's your, your, your role and your duty. And, yeah, I, I'm, I'm cautious of watching a lot of coaching environments almost become adversarial, where there's an adversarial relationship between the group being coached and the coach. And, you know, we need more caring more fair and more protection for the group. And I think you're on a good path to a, a culture there. Um, boys, we're going to have to whip out another 90 minutes of this soon. But Todd, where can people find you, mate? 
give them the, all the details, you and Tovo. Come train with us any morning on the Mediterranean Sea. But if that isn't in your plans, then just come on to, uh, you can find me on Twitter at underscore Todd Bean. Uh, and Cody, you and I and Doug are all connected on that platform. Um, but also if you want to find information about, you know, how we go about the business of, of, of educating uh, young student athletes, they can find us at tovoinstitute.com. And then from there, we can just pick up the conversation. I just want to say, as I close out and leave the final word for you and Doug, is that it's been an honor. I'm always excited to speak with, with great leaders. And as I said, more reputable authors that have a lot more experience in this domain. And so I've got many notes that I've taken, and I, I'm sure the, the listeners will as well. So it's been an absolute privilege and honor to, to be on with you. I appreciate that. I'm coming for a visit next summer as well. So we'll see you there. Doug, where can the the one person that I was going to one up you and ask if Todd was going to start a program for, for 53 year old, old washed up media, always mediocre footballers who, you know, want to take the walk to the field every morning. Cause I'm, there, I'm there's, a, there's a few good stops for red wine and tapas on that walk. I must say. <laughs> that sounds pretty civilized to me. So that's where people can find me. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I'm uh, also on Twitter at Doug underscore Lamov, and I have a blog. It's Teach Like a Champion. Uh, that's the name of my teaching book, backslash, uh, backslash blog. And uh, just to reiterate what Todd said, it's been great. Like I've learned a ton. I've a bunch of notes from today and really just enjoy talking to you guys about the craft of, um, of human potential and growing it. So thanks for giving me the chance. Yeah. Thanks for making this work, boys. And yeah, uh, thanks also for being advocates and uh, energizers for the coaching community and i've learned an absolute ton from you guys over the years not just on this call this has obviously been condensed but uh yeah thanks for putting your ideas out there because it allows us to sharpen our axes up against yours um and get better together so yeah lads this has been an absolute blast thank you so much and yeah we'll have to do it again hey thanks for listening all the way to the end in some markets the tough stuff Coach's Guide to Teaching and Clear Coaching are still being bundled together on Amazon as frequently bought together. I highly recommend grabbing all three if you haven't already. As always, if you'd like to get in touch with me, head to codyroyal.com. See you next time.